All right. Let's go ahead and uh, get started. We are on session six, just at the very beginning of that. And so that's where we'll start on the, uh, uh, the sheet for session six. And we'll begin by singing the hymn, uh, which is listed there. And I'm going to try and pick a good note. That's hard to do as a tenor. Right? So I hope we're not always singing these way too high for you. Um, but um, John Devantek, the body of the Lord, and drink the holy blood for you outpoured. Offered was he for greatest and for least. He Himself the victim and himself the priest. He who his saints in this world rules and shields. To all believers life eternal yields. With heavenly bread he Makes the hungry whole, gives life-bring waters to the thirsting soul. Come forward then with faithful hearts sincere, and take the pledges of salvation here. O Lord, our hearts with grateful thanks endow, as in this feast of love you bless us now. All right, let's pray the prayer. Our great high priest, who opens for me a way to the throne of God. Plant your saving word in my heart. Let it find welcome there. Let nothing in this life so distract me. Let no trouble so embitter me that the joy and promise of saving vigor of its message be lost to me. Power, life, and light are mine through your holy revelation. The world around me is turmoil. At your side is peace. Bless me and keep me through your word and in your promise. Amen. All right, so that's where we're going to pick up there. And uh, just looking ahead a little bit, um, when we finish Hebrews, I have asked Pastor-elect Goodroad to... Think about and prepare another homegrown Bible study to follow that. And we'll kind of alternate then, at least for a while, between homegrown and lifelight. And so he's thinking about that, and we'll get that started when, when the time is right. So just looking ahead, that's our plan. Sound all right? Okay. All right. I'll tell him you all vehemently opposed whatever. No, just, just joking. Oh, what's that? Don't let getting started wrong. That's right. There we go. No, we'll try not to. 
Let's go ahead. We're uh, going to look at Hebrews chapter 9 then. And uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 10 to begin. And this is, we've talked about the priesthood now. And now we're going to talk about the, the, the temple itself, uh, which as we talk about it, we'll look at how this kind of dates this particular book as well as how much theology there is here in the book of Hebrews, um, finding what happened in the Old Testament fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's read verses 9, 1 through 10. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. The tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was the second section called the most holy place. all the time of Luther, right? No, just joking. Not that Reformation. All right. So uh, in that particular section, we have kind of the author of Hebrews laying out the design and the function within a certain extent of that design of the tabernacle, which informed the design of Solomon's temple, which then also informed the design of the temple that stood while he's writing this, um, the second Jewish temple, Herod's temple. Uh, and um, that indicates, to start with, that this is written before that temple was destroyed. And that temple was destroyed August of 70 AD. Uh, and so we know this is written prior to that. In fact, it's probably written before 69 or 68 AD because at that point the war was going on. And I think it would have been written differently if, if that was happening. So it's describing the design and the shape. And that leads us to the very first couple of questions here. So question number one, name the two rooms of the tabernacle and the furnishings that are found in each of those rooms. And he talked a little bit about that. So we have the first room. What, is, what does it say about that room? 
And what's in that room? The holy plate. Okay. Correct. Okay. So the first section is the holy plates. Okay. And that's the first section is if you're walking in the doors. So maybe we can use this room as an example, right? So if these are the doors, you're walking in, and this area all the way through that divider there would be like that first section. Okay. The holy place. And in that holy place were the lampstand, the table for the bread of the presence, and the um, altar of incense. Okay? All right. Now, what's the lampstand? <laughs> kind of. It's a fancy Jewish candle. Okay. We call it a menorah, right? Except it's not a menorah, it's a menorah that's huge. Okay. Um, if you go and look at, um, if you go home and Google a picture of the Arch of Titus in Rome, inside that they have a carving of what that menorah looked like. And it's a first person view in that carving because when the Romans destroyed the temple, they carried off that lampstand and they put it in the Temple of Peace in Rome. And so up until uh, 425 AD, that menorah still existed in the Temple of Peace in Rome, and you could go and see it. Uh, and then uh, barbarians came and ransacked the city, and that's where we lose track of it historically. But it's a big, huge one. You see multiple people carrying it, and it would light that first room. What's the bread of the presence? We would say that now. <laughs> And I think that what we see here is, is uh, pointing forward to that. It's sometimes it's called the showbread, right? And so it's a table. Um, have you ever gone, maybe this is a good example, like to the grocery store and they have the cart of bread that they roll around and it's not just one table, but there's layer after layer of bread with all the different things. That's the kind of table that it was. It wasn't on wheels, but you put lots of bread in there, and every day you put bread in there before God in his presence. Okay, so that's the table that they're talking about there. So that was just more than one loaf? Yes, there was more than one loaf. Why they loaf? Um... Because that's what God said. I don't know what to say besides that. It was brought in fresh, put before the Lord, and then it would be taken out later. I cannot remember if the priests ate it or not. There at least was one example of it being eaten when King David was running away from King Saul. 
And that's the bread that he then ate uh, at that time. Do you remember, Vicar, if the priests normally ate that bread or if it was just disposed of? Okay. I think they did eat it. Did they eat it? Okay. That's like how it in my Bible says it's 12 loaves arranged with two loaves and six. Yeah. And there's a big debate about whether the rows went like this. <laughs> so, like six shelves. There is a group of Jews in Israel who are trying to rebuild the temple, and they have remade some of these things. They have. I think six shelves. So they ate it every Sabbath. They ate it every Sabbath. Okay. And I think the tradition was is that it was still warm from when it was baked a week later after they changed it. I do not know if that's the truth or not. Did somebody important have to bake it, or did that? I think it was baked by the priests. That's, that's all I know. Yeah. Okay. So we have the lampstand. We have the bread of the presence. Okay? All right. And that's the holy place. Other questions? These are good questions. We're stumping Pastor Moline today. All right, then we have letter B, the second room. What was that? The, the most holy place, the Kadosh Kadoshim, I think, uh, is how they said it. The holiest place, the holy of holies, okay? Um, the holiest place of all holy places. And what's in that room? Golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, and inside the Ark of the Covenant, what's in there? Yep, there's manna that Moses collected and put in a jar, and they placed in there. What else? Aaron's staff. After it budded, it was placed inside the Ark. And what else? The of the yep, the stone tablets on which were written what? Ten the Ten Commandments. Okay, and here's here we have. Let's look at um, verse five here. Above it also were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. What are we talking about here? What's the mercy seat? Let's start with that. Isn't that the presence of God? We're, yep, let's, we'll get there in a second. The mercy seat, what that means is it's the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, and so it sits on top of the Ark of the Covenant. It's called the mercy seat. And above that are the cherubim. Okay? What's that mean? Yep, there's two angels. 
one on each side of the lid, and their wings are sticking out above the mercy seat. Okay? Um, I know in the study Bible, the Lutheran study Bible, there is kind of a, a good picture for visualizing this. And I cannot remember if it's in Exodus or if it's in Deuteronomy. It must be in Deuteronomy. But you can uh, picture these angels. I'm going to... It's in Exodus? All right, what page? 125. Okay. Page 125. Exodus 26, you said? There's, there's a small picture. I know in um, some place where it talks about the Holy of Holies, it's got an even better picture. And I should have looked that up. That's on page 139. You can see a small picture of it. In that picture, you see the small one. You see two angels with their wings like this. And their feathers flying down so that you can't really see inside of their wings very easily. Okay? And that's because now, Barb, what's in between those wings above the mercy seat? The presence of God. The visual physical manifestation of God is located there. Okay? That's what's in that spot. That's what makes it the holiest place. Okay? The holiest place. 159? Okay. I just didn't go far enough. There you go. That's the one I was thinking of. All right, page 159, you can see it. Now, whether this is the exact design or not, this is a person's interpretation, but you have those angels there that are doing the guarding of that area so that you can't see God's glory. And why is that good to not see God's glory? Right. Sinners don't get to see that and live uh, without a special dispensation from God. Okay, so there you go, page 159. I knew it was there. I just looked at it the other day, and I thought, oh, I can turn there again. <laughs> All right. So there you have that, the Ark of the Covenant, and you see the lid. That's the mercy seat. And inside, this is question two, are those things that we were talking about. The manna, the staff, the tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments. Okay? Now, um, 
why, this is the next part of the question, why is it so important for the people of Israel to keep these particular items in the most holy place, in the thing that made that place the most holy place? And it says, read Exodus 29, verses 45 and 46. Why is it so important for the people of Israel to keep these items? It's a reminder of their history. Yeah, a reminder of their history, and even a step further, a reminder of whose they are. I'm talking about the people. Who do the people belong to? God. God. And if you doubt it, then you have the things that are in there where God kept you and sustained you and led you and gave you his word. Now, especially important, and it doesn't have a lot of discussion about this, um, is in the, the Ark of the Covenant are the Ten Commandments written on stone. And we kind of, we've read a little bit about it. Once a year, this is question four, but I, I'm jumping around a little bit. Once a year, the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies. And what's he carry with him? Blood. Blood in a little bowl. And his job is to go in and to pour the blood underneath God, but above the Ten Commandments, which are in the box below. Why? Blood says. Yeah. The blood is poured out in between where God is and where the law in the Ten Commandments are. It's the blood, then, that intercedes on our behalf for the breaking of the law that God gave that's recorded and remains inside that box. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's the high priest's job. Now it also doesn't talk about this, which it should, so I'm going to do a little excursus here. Uh, sorry, Vicar, you're going to have to start with question three next week. <laughs> but I think it's very important. The Holy of Holies... What shape is it? Close. The whole tabernacle is a rectangle. I heard it's a cube. It's a perfect cube, yeah. And it is the same height and width and length. Okay? So inside the tabernacle, that room is a perfect cube. 
What's that make us think of? A cube has those three things, and they're all the same, and yet they're all different. <laughs> yeah, the triune God. And then in the temple, when Solomon builds the temple, the same thing, the Holy of Holies, is a perfect cube. Okay? And then in Herod's temple, the Holy of Holies is a perfect cube. Why am I bringing this up? In the book of Revelation, the very end of the scriptures, you see, uh, and this is in chapter 21, okay, you see the new Jerusalem, you see the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And it is the same height as its width as its depth. It's a perfect cube. Wherever God's presence is in that place, it's always this perfect cube. And this is important to keep in mind as we work our way through these words of Hebrews, because he says, while the first room is in existence, we don't get to go into the second room. When do we get to go in the second room? Once a year. Well, the high priest did once a year. How about you? Yeah, when we die, when the resurrection happens, when we go to God's kingdom, we are going into the Holy of Holies. This city of Jerusalem that is that perfect cube. We get to go in to that place. And even at the death of Jesus, this is already indicated, because what happens when Christ dies that indicates that we get to go in? The curtain is torn. Okay, so again, if this side of the room is the holy place and over there is the holy of holies, there would be a curtain that hung between the two separating them. And it wasn't just a curtain, it was a curtain. Alright, <laughs> man-sized curtain. It was like this thick type of curtain. And woven into the fabric um, are the, in these blue and red and gold and white fibers are pictures of what they imagined the heavens to look like. And when Christ dies, that curtain is torn from top to bottom, which would take some doing, right? Because it's a man-sized curtain, <laughs> okay? Um, you know, Vicar thinks he's pretty strong. He wouldn't be able to tear this curtain on his own. And the direction of the tearing is important too. Where does it begin to tear? Uh, uh, the top. Who's doing that then? Okay, Vicar is pretty strong, and he's also uh, awkwardly tall. Okay, <laughs> can he reach up to tear a curtain that's thirty feet tall from the top to the bottom? No. No. He could if Pastor Poppy told him to jump, because he just says, "How high?" Okay. <laughs> God is the one who's opening that door so that now at the death of Jesus, by his blood, we get to enter into the Holy of Holies, which is then pictured as the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven as this perfect cube 
in which we get to live forever. It is not necessarily indicating that the New Jerusalem is a perfect cube, literally, instead of a, a globe or instead of a city or whatever. It's indicating it's the Holy of Holies where God is, and now we get to live there. I don't know if I'm making sense or if I'm just blabbing all my own little interesting things that I, I find. Questions? Oh, so when, bar. when the temple is destroyed, um, what happens to all this stuff? When the temple is destroyed, what happens to all the stuff that's in there? It is destroyed in war. And what had happened is the Romans had taken most of the city and the Jews fighting against them had pulled back into the temple and were using it as a fortress. And so on the north side of where the temple building stood, there was a terribly bloody battle where uh, I think Josephus says the blood was sitting across the ground inches high because so many people had been killed. And in the midst of this fighting, and it had been going on for several months, and the people were tired of it, and they were angry at each other, someone threw a burning torch into the temple. The temple was made out of limestone and cedar. And the burning torch that gets thrown in there sets it on fire. And once it's on fire, and everybody sees it's on fire, many of the Jewish soldiers stopped fighting because they were terror-stricken that their temple, where God dwells, is burning to the ground. Okay, now we know, was God dwelling there any longer? Okay, where, where had God dwelt that was his new dwelling place? In, in the flesh of Jesus, right? So in the Old Testament... Jeremiah, or is it in Ezekiel? The presence of God left the temple, and it never comes back until Jesus comes into the temple. Okay? So it's just an empty room, but to their eyes, it's the place where God is supposed to dwell. So they stop fighting, and they're surrendering and getting captured, and the Romans... What's their, what thing do they like above all other things at that time? Gold. Gold. What, what is on the inside of the temple? Gold. Gold. What is the menorah made out of? Gold. So it's on fire and burning. The battle has kind of come to an end because the other side feels like they've lost and is surrendering. And the Roman soldiers run in and they grab as much as they can before it burns to the ground. And it's limestone. Limestone burns. Did you know that? That's one of the ways that they make lime um, is they burn limestone. So it's hot enough the stones are even burning. And even now, um, underneath 
There's the Temple Mount Square. Maybe you've seen it on TV or in a picture where the Wailing Wall is. Just to the south of that, the flames were hot enough that there are still burn marks on the stone from the flames. And you can see where there were little shops because there's burn marks in the shape of the walls of the shops right next to those walls. So that's a really long answer. The Romans came in and got as much of it as they could. The really big pieces the emperor used to establish this is, he's a new emperor, a new line. He uses it as propaganda to establish his authority in Rome. And that's then why some of the pieces got put in that temple in Rome for hundreds of years afterwards. So did the war Yes, and after he had ascended into heaven. So Jesus is probably born between 3 and 1 BC. And this war takes, his death is then either in 29 or 33 BC. Oh, AD, thank you. His, his death is either 29 or 33 AD. And this war takes place in 67 to 70 AD, in this particular battle then, August of 70 AD. So the curtain is torn at this time, right? The, the Jews remade it. They reclosed it off. <laughs> Which, the ark and the tablets were in there when, this, uh, when the Romans burned or got burned. Yeah. <laughs> You've put me in an awkward place here, Leonard. The ark is not inside when the Romans burn it to the ground. Because they don't know where it went. Essentially, after Solomon put it in there, it's never mentioned again. So Solomon builds the temple somewhere around 970 B.C. I said the right one that time, Vicar. 970 B.C. is when Solomon builds the temple. This is 430 years after the Exodus. And he puts the Ark of the Covenant in that temple. And we don't hear about it again. But in 586... The Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, and it either was destroyed then, or it was hidden by the Jews before the Babylonians destroyed it, or it's in Iraq and got broken up, or if you can find it, Leonard, you could... It was mentioned in Habakkuk. It really didn't go into details of what all the Babylonians carried out of Jerusalem. Yeah. And that's the thing. It doesn't say if they took it or if they didn't. Um, and that's, since it's silent, that's why there's all this speculation. <laughs> that's why Indiana Jones made a good movie about it. Because we don't know. All we know is, after Solomon put it in there, we don't hear about it ever again. And the temple is destroyed in 586. And the new temple that we're talking about that burned in, under the Romans in 62 
B.C., is that the right year, Vicar? When the Romans got involved and helped um, Herod the Great win the, the civil war that the Jews were fighting, Pompey the Great essentially conquered Jerusalem and went into the Holy of Holies. And he recorded for us, I don't know what the big deal is, the room is empty. <laughs> um, there's an archaeologist named Lean Rittmeyer who speculates you can tell in that stone where the ark sat because there's a rectangle carved into the rock. Now it's inside the dome of the rock that's in the right spot and the right size and shape. That could be the place where it was, but we just don't know. So the passages that we're reading, Paul is just re retelling the original condition. Yes. Okay. Which sets the template for all the temples and even sets the template for church sanctuary design up until the last hundred years, really, when we want it to be more like a movie theater now than, than that way. Which it does, it's not wrong. It's not illegal. <laughs> it's just we still see a little bit of it. We have a rail around the altar area. Inside that's the Holy of Holies, and the other part of it is the holy place, and that affects the design of church sanctuaries even till today. Deb, you had your hand up. It's more sharing the learning and it's not Go ahead. Um, I saw a video on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that as well. Do you want my... It sounds a little bit suspect to me. There's been other speculations that there is a tunnel that was open at the time of Christ that goes closest to the, where the Holy of Holies was. And you can get down there, it's walled up. They were doing excavations in there because they thought it was hidden down there. If it's, my gut is this, it no longer is in existence. Because if it was, what would be the focus of our faith? Yeah, it, it would become the ark. Okay, instead of what? What is the real ark? Jesus. Jesus is. And it's in Christ that we need to have faith. There's, oh, there's another one too. The Ethiopians believe they have it. Uh, down on an island in the middle of a lake in a one-room little tiny chapel that only one man is ever allowed in. And um, yeah, we don't know. 
I'm pretty sure it was either destroyed or God took it so that our faith might be in Christ instead of in the ark. Which is what, watch me do this segue here, Vicar, which is what the author of Hebrews is eventually going to get to. (laughs) Christ fulfills all of these things that we're talking about. And so our faith is in him, not in these things. All right. Are you bored out of your mind yet? (laughs) Okay. Vicar, as you should see him, he's sleeping and snoring and drools going down his face. (laughs) Except for when I say B.C. instead of A.D. And then he's like, oh. (laughs) All right. Oh, yeah. The menorah, um, the menorah is a large lamp, and it has seven uh, lights on it. And the one that's clearly described for us matches what's pictured in the Ark of Tri- uh, Titus, um, and it's an oil lamp, seven of them up at the top and they have these really tall ladders you had to climb to go fill these uh, oil lamps the number seven is always reminding us of what event that God was involved in the creation and that's even enshrined in our modern calendar uh, in how many days are in a week okay and it's enshrined not just in our calendar but in many many calendars throughout the world throughout history which is interesting when you stop and think about it, isn't it? <laughs> okay, why, why do some people that live nowhere near Israel have seven-day week? <clears throat> Maybe because that part of the creation account came down to them verbally. Uh, sorry. So we have the seven days of creation and the light indicating God's presence and finding ultimately its fulfillment in who, who claims to be the light of the world? Jesus Christ. So that's what I would say about the menorah. All right. I just wondered, Jewish people still use the menorah in some of their religious things. Does it have the same meaning to them now as it did then? Yeah, they use it in Hanukkah um, primarily. And so it has, it has that that we, we were just talking about, the seven days of creation, the week, God's presence enshrined in it. They would not say that it's fulfilled in Christ who is the light of the world. But then Hanukkah comes along, and this is at the time of the Maccabean Revolt, which would be in the 180 to 200 BC range. And... They drive out the Greeks, and they take Jerusalem, and they're trying to rededicate the temple uh, to serve God because the Greeks had slaughtered pigs in there and desecrated it uh, by going into the Holy of Holies. And so they want to re-cleanse it and restart the worship there, but they don't have enough oil 
to keep that lamp going. They only have one day's oil. So they put the oil in the lamp and they light it and the tradition says that the oil burned for seven days instead of just the one day. And that part now has kind of taken over their understanding of the menorah because they don't want it to be fulfilled in Christ. <laughs> um, if you have a vested interest in Jesus not being the Messiah, you wash him away from everything that's in the Old Testament. And I hope that sounds charitable, because I mean it that way. Okay. Does anybody remember what question we're on? <laughs> oh, the altar of incense. Yeah, the prayers. And we see that in Isaiah uh, and also in Revelation as well. And especially in Isaiah, it's the place where God gets the coal to touch his lips to purify his sins, which uh, I think I preached on this several years ago. is interesting because... That's the year King Uzziah died, and Uzziah died of leprosy because he went in and um, went to that altar and burnt incense there without a priest, which was against the rules, and then he caught leprosy as a result. So um, there you go. Everything is connected. Someday when I'm good at writing, I'm going to write a book on the topic. I have a lot of work to do, though. <laughs> All right. Are we on question three, then? The cherubim mentioned in verse 5 were winged figures made of gold. The Lord caused the glory of his presence to appear between the wings of the cherubim over the cover of the ark. Where is the Lord Jesus Christ present on earth today? We have Matthew 18:20 and Matthew 28:20 and if somebody could read those Yep. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Okay. So, is God, where's, where's Jesus according to that particular uh, verse? Yeah. He is wherever Christians are gathered in his name. There's lots of things that that means. Okay, let's read Matthew 28 first, and then we can talk about them. Matthew 28, 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Okay, where is Christ according to that verse? Yeah. Now, the lots of things that we could say about that is, where are people gathered together in Christ's name? Church. Yeah, and what part of church? The divine service. The divine service, right? How do we start a divine service? Right, that's, that's what begins the divine service. And even, um, <laughs> boy, I want to say it. Okay, and it's not that we're doing anything wrong. That's when Pastor Poppy begins the service, he always says, before we sing our hymn, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. 
which is fine. It's good to pray. You notice Pastor Moline doesn't. Do you know why? Because it's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that we really are beginning. And I, I don't want to say, before we begin, let's begin by, by this prayer. I want, want everything we do to be in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, in the name of God. Like I said, it's a little thing. We're not doing anything wrong. But that's why Pastor Moline does it just a little bit differently. Okay? In case you wondered, now you know. <laughs> um, and you all thought it was because I wasn't as winsome. No, just teasing. <laughs> okay. Um, God is present then in the name, in the divine service as we begin in that name. And then how do we end the service as well? Yeah, with the ironic blessing, right? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. We say the Lord three times. Again, that's the other bookend of the service. And everything in between that we do is done in the name of Jesus. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? So in that sense, the divine service is where we gather in the name of Jesus. There's even more. When we have a baby who's new in the congregation, we bring him up to the front of the church and we pour water on them. How? Yeah, we put the name of God on the baby with the water. Wherever two or more are gathered in my name, what's Jesus say? Yeah, surely I will be, I'm with you. Okay? When we do that then, Christ is promising to be with that child during their life. Um, let's move to Matthew 28 then too, okay? Because there's a lot that's said here in that way as well. Okay? Jesus says, Therefore, when you have gone... Make disciples of all nations. How? By means of baptizing them. Okay, just like we just talked about. And teaching them all that I have commanded you. Now, we just go over those words so often. But what is the thing that Jesus commanded? Yeah, baptizing, we just saw that. And then the second one, the Lord's Supper. Our Lord Jesus Christ, and the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them and said, and this is the command part, take, eat, this is my body, take, drink, this is my blood. That's something that he commanded. And where does that happen? Again, in the divine service. Okay, and to the best of my knowledge, there's only one other thing that Christ commanded the church. He breathed on the disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone their sins, they are forgiven. Christ is commanding that sins be forgiven in his name. And that's how we do it, right? I forgive you all of your sins in the 
name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In all of those things, then, Christ promises to be with us. In all of those things, we use God's name, and then he is present among us. Um, That's why being in church is so very important. It's the place where we get together in the name of the Lord. By extension, then, too, in our own homes can this happen. Right, this is what we've been working on with these building the faith in the home classes. So that dads, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, lead their family in many worship services, if you will, within their vocation, so that Christ then is also present in the home as well. Okay. Um, Until I came here, I had never heard the worship service be referred to as a divine service. When did that start? When did they start using that terminology? Yeah. I cannot tell you a specific date of when that term was used, and maybe the vicar knows better than I, but it's all the way back in Europe before Lutherans come here. In Germany, it was called the Gottesdienst, which means God, goddess, dienst, service, God, service. Uh, And that's where the term comes from. I'm pretty sure it was used at Luther's time, but I don't know when it began before then. Do you know, Vicar, the earliest use of that, that phrase? So it's been a long time. So then we just got lax? Yeah. Years well, yeah, that's, that's a part of it. So, <laughs> goddess deans means God service, right? And what it is telling us is who's doing the doing in the worship. God. God is serving us. God's service. When we come to America, our ancestors in the Missouri Synod, they still use the phrase Gottesdienst for a long time. I think until World War I. Who was the enemy in World War I? The Germans. So it wasn't popular to be a German speaker in the United States at that time. So much so, did you know that just about 10 miles from Lincoln, there was a town called Germantown? And now, since World War I, it's called Garland, (laughs) because they didn't want to call it Germantown anymore because those are the enemies. (laughs) So all of a sudden, really quickly, there is a translation of as much worship as possible from German into English. And as that takes place very quickly because of the circumstances, we adopt a lot of already existing English words because German is sometimes hard to translate. Have you noticed any, any German speakers? They just take words and they just, like cars crashing into each other at 60 miles an hour, they just combine them, right? Um, 
like, instead of hymnal, instead of hymnal, they say, Kirchengesang book. And it, they just put it all together in one thing, which means church, song, book, Kirchengesang book. But they make it all one word. <laughs> okay? And that's the same with Gottesdienst. Uh, God's service is kind of an awkward thing, and so sometimes it got translated as just plain worship. And it got used vernacularly amongst Lutherans in the term worship. There's a problem with that word worship, though. When we use the word worship, who's doing the doing? We are. We are. <laughs> and so lately, you know, especially when this new hymnal, is it in LW? I can't remember if it is the blue hymnal. That was the hymnal before L uh, LSB, Vicar. Okay, okay. <laughs> can't remember if it uses the term divine service or not. Um, but lately, in the last while, we've decided to try and reintroduce the word that is specifically Lutheran, and divine service is that one, taking those words and trying to make them in an easy way to say in English, divine service. Is that kind of... Yeah, I mean, I noticed it with the, on the radio and with the speakers and stuff, they use divine service as well. So it's, yeah. it's throughout all the leader, the leaders are trying to transform it into the... I think this comes from both the leaders and then also faithful pastors wanting to make sure we're clear on that teaching that because... In our world, so many people think worship is our action of serving God rather than his action of serving us. And we want to make that clear, uh, and that terminology helps clarify that. I was in a Bible study, or I thought that was a trick question. What does worship mean? <laughs> they went around the room, and I uh, think only one person got the answer the leader was looking for. God serving us. Great. You're very right about it being an ambiguous word in English. And even the way it's in songs, right? So Vicar's favorite song, um, Here I Am to Worship, Here I Am to Bow Down, Here I Am to Say That You're My God. It's all about the things Vicar is doing rather than uh, ever mentioning what God is doing. So... I keep telling them to quit blasting it on the radio. Um, it's, it's so bad I had to move one more room down to get away from the sound. So, <laughs> All right. Um, it's 2 o'clock. I hope this was all helpful and interesting and not just Pastor Moline taking simple questions and talking about them for a long time. But we'll, we'll pick up... Um, with question four next week um, and Vicar will pick up there we're just a little ways away and hopefully Pastor Goodroad he won't be installed till July but he's going to move the week of the 26th so that's eight to ten days away is when he's going to move so hopefully he'll be here before too long as well the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.